stand together and sing. He came to live. So many others who claim to be gods, who claim to be uh, leaders of world religions, uh, didn't lay down their life for us. You did. And then you took it back up again. Praise God. And we are honored and humbled in your presence today, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. If you would uh, grab one of these um, 
connection cards. We would be thrilled if you would fill that out. Maybe you're a first or second time guest. We certainly want to know uh, that you're worshiping with us today. And if you would, just hang on to this and take it to the connection area, uh, our, our, new, our shiny new, by the way, uh, connection area um, in the lobby. And, and uh, some of the connection uh, team would love to meet you and give you a small gift uh, for being here today. So please fill that out and take that uh, to the lobby after the service. Uh, there's another card in there for prayer request, and we will certainly uh, uh, pray for those prayer requests. And then another thing that you have in your pew uh, in front of you, and, and uh, this was there one Sunday and we failed to get to it, so today we're finally getting to it. Uh, this is a survey for preschool and children. Uh, God has blessed us so immensely with new families, whether it be, uh, well, families who, who have new babies or families who have come in with preschoolers and children. And, uh, and we need help. We just need help. And so uh, if you would fill this out and let Jennifer and, um, and Cindy know how you could help, we would appreciate that greatly. Please just leave that in the pew and then we'll just pick that up after the service, okay? So fill that out, preferably during the sermon, not the music. And, <laughs> and just leave that, in the, leave that in the pew in front of you there, okay? I, don't, I didn't mean that, Pastor. <laughs> this, uh, this next hymn, I, should, I shouldn't have made a joke because this is very serious. This next hymn is a great, great Isaac Watts hymn. It re- and it reminds me of a verse that, that, that tells us, don't, don't make a pledge lightly to God. It's serious when we make a, an oath to God. And in this hymn, um, Isaac Watts, uh, on our behalf, if we're going to sing it, uh, he makes an oath for us to God. He says, love so amazing, so divine. What does it demand? My soul, my life, my all. Amen. So let's let's sing this great hymn together. When I survey. When I survey.
And with that same theme in mind, we cannot be deceived by this world and ever take our eyes off Jesus. Amen. We have to make him our focus, our vision. This next great hymn reminds us of that. just continue in a spirit of praise, a spirit of thanksgiving, and a spirit of worship as we give. Uh, Lord, giving is uh, no less an, an act of worship than, than celebrating in song, than in witnessing, than in scripture reading, than in prayer. Uh, Lord, it's part of the disciplines of, that you've given us, and Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to it. Uh, Lord, we pray that you bless this time, and may it further your kingdom and for your glory, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
bow with me, please. The Lord is the light, is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lori, did you say your Bible just popped open to Ephesians? Yeah, his did, that's right. Well, let's pop them open to Ephesians again. Ephesians chapter 5. It's well been said that when it's all said and done, you can name your closest friends on one hand. So I don't know if that's true for you, but think about five fingers and have those men. You got five guys in your life that you would feel like are truly friends sticks closer than a brother and, and is born for adversity I think if you're a pastor you're down to three right and of course John MacArthur has said you can be one of two things in preaching you can be popular or you can be faithful but you can't be both one or the other right and so I'm thankful for friends that are closer than brothers. And I have one that's dying of cancer. And uh, this friend has been born out of adversity in my life for a long time. And he's on hospice. And I would appreciate your prayers for him. His name is Chris Leopard. And uh, his family's gathered around him. And it look, doesn't look like it's going to be long at all. And, uh, it, you know, pastors have feelings. We go through difficulties. And this one has been trying Next to my dad's death and sickness, this, this, one's, this one hits. And so, uh, would appreciate your prayers. All right. Now, I've learned that there are other families in our church that like to watch Duck Dynasty. I'm a redneck. And so, I have to go back to southern roots. And in order to do that, in Missouri, you have to watch Duck Dynasty. And I found out that others in our church watch it. But, but uh, Natalie and Nathan and myself, we gather at night and we try our best to watch at least one episode. The other day, uh, Willie is trying to motivate his motley crew to make more duck calls. So he walks in with a soft serve ice cream on a cone. He's just wearing it out. It's all in his luscious beard and it's going everywhere. And... Godwin, if you know Duck Dynasty, he eats everything. So he's like all the, he's motivated. He's like, oh yes. Why? Because Willie has bought an, a soft serve ice cream machine and put it in his office. The more duck calls you make, the more ice cream you get. And Godwin, he's sucked right in. Hook, line, and sinker. Jace is not so much the case. He's like, that doesn't work for me. I can go buy an ice cream. And so he comes up with another alternative to try to motivate the guys. But we all know that there are all kinds of inducements that are offered 
in the form of maybe higher wages or attractive conditions or bonuses or holidays, recreational and educational facilities. And then ultimately for us, uh, if you are an employee and you have an employer, you want to know what that retirement pension is going to look like. In our day, it's going to look like this. Nothing, right? <laughs> but wise employers uh, of labor seek to give their workforce a heightened interest in their job that's bigger than just a material thing. If you, if you truly understand that, un, that, have that thought in your mind, there is loyalty to the firm. There's something bigger than just making and selling. Uh, you, you, you begin to have loyalty to the name. Or you begin to feel part of the team in such a way that you want to do this for this particular company, not just to make money. Well, I've got news for you. We have all kind of incentives as the people of God. We, we have a job. We have a duty in this world. But that cannot be the main motivation why we serve. There's something bigger. And Ephesians 1 actually tells you what it is three different times. God did all that he did to save you for the praise of his glory. To the praise of his grace. Not, not us, but him. That's why he does what he does. For his great name's sake. So once we learn in the Christian living that it's for the praise of his glorious grace. And it's about his glory. It's about honoring him and delighting in him. That becomes the quintessential motivation to do what we do as the people of God. And most importantly, it is to please the Lord. That's the Christian's finest motto. Paul says, whether I'm present or absent, I do all things that I might please him, please the Lord. So this, is, this text has been about that very thing. Um, just think about the fact that you've been justified and saved by grace through faith. And then in the end, God has guaranteed you your inheritance. And he did so by giving you the Holy Spirit of God to make sure you get what God, all that is coming to you. But there's this in-between life. In other words, there's sanctification. And folks, if you're not walking in sanctification, becoming more like Christ every day, then you were never regenerated and justified to begin with. Right? And this is so important. It's, this is, there's not much taught in churches today about sanctification. But the Bible is replete and full of it, of this life that we're supposed to live. In case you've missed this, this is the heart of Ephesians 5, right? Since you have been redeemed and you have this new identity, first walk in love, chapter 5, 1 and 2. And now we're in this position here of walking in the light. We know that when God saved us, there's this putting on and putting off. The putting on the new putting off the old. And it has in it the connotation and the metaphorical language of clothing. Right? You put off the dirty. You put on the new. So God in chapter 5 is wanting you to practically put on what you already have positionally. Does that make sense? It's one thing to belong to the Lord. It's another thing to start becoming like the God to which you belong. Okay, that's the process of sanctification. Hear me, if you're not walking in that, if there's not a continual putting on and putting off, 
If there's not a continual abiding in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, then you never had justification and regeneration and calling and, and salvation to begin with, right? You never responded in true, genuine, saving faith if you're not walking in that faith today, okay? So, we saw last week that there should, as beloved children, loved by God, there is this, there are, there's inappropriate things that should not mark us. You remember that? Sexual immorality, greed, and filthy language. He puts those things in there. That, that, was, that was one of those sermons where I have to be faithful, not popular. Right? And I, I know there were a lot of comments back to me about that. That's, it's not a fun thing to remind people of it. But it's a biblical thing. Uh, this, this, the prevailing nature of, of sexual promiscuity in our land is so pervasive. It's unbelievable. We need to be reminded that if you belong to Jesus, you live different from the world. You have a worldview that is different. So, let's be careful not to take the teeth out of the argument in Ephesians 5. Paul assures us in this letter that our heavenly inheritance and the work of the Holy Spirit has guaranteed us until we acquire that possession. He wants us to have eyes that are open to such riches of His glory and of His inheritance. And that's in Ephesians 1.18. But at the same time, we should not fall into a life of greedy immorality. We should not fall into a pattern of sexual immorality or filthy language. If we do, we supply evidence that we are idolaters and not Christians. If we do, then we actually show that we are children of our father, the devil, and not the Lord. We show that we're not heirs of heaven, but actually heirs of hell. We need to heed the warning. Okay, that was all introductory. Y'all good to go? All right, so that's the first thing. Avoid immorality, greed, and filthy language. Here, here's 7 through 14. Beloved children will live as people of the light. And for the sake of time, please go back and read chapter 5, verse two, uh, 3 down through verse 6. But here's verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Do not be joined with who? Sons of disobedience that have a pattern of lifestyle that is of sexual immorality, greed, and filthy language. Clear? Don't be partners with them. Verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things that they do in secret. Think of the context. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthy language. Take no part in those unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O despondent one, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So beloved children will live as people of the light. We were darkness, 
But now we are light in the Lord. So your identity has changed. We walk in verse 8 as children of light. Remember I talked about this being a chiastic stru- uh, structure. I know that's a, a term we think. Well what in the world does that mean? Just think young people you know this. You bracket something off in parentheses. Okay. And the first part of that parentheses is found in verse 7. Therefore do not become partners with them. The other part of the bracket is verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. You see how it, it focuses on the same principle. But in the middle we have walk as children of light. And that's why it's so important. It's positioned in the middle for a particular reason. He's identifying us as being receptors of a new identity and is characterized as light. It calls forth an understanding of our identity in the Lord. It means that there has to be a disassociation with darkness. Some things are mutually exclusive. When you get married, you can't act single. Right? When you become light, you're not darkness. That is You don't walk in sinful behaviors. When we live as beloved children of the light, we're conscious of those things that are inappropriate. And we are conscious of those things that are appropriate that we should live, those lifestyles. So in John 8, 12, here's the the verse. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light, there it is, of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus made this claim. And he's actually standing in the court of women in John 8 verse 20. It's flooded with lights. It is the first night of the Feast of Tabernacles. And there's this ceremonial lighting with four huge golden candlesticks. And there's this ceremony that's commemorating the pillar of fire by night that guided and protected the Israelites during the wilderness wanderings. And you'll find that in Ezekiel. I'm sorry, Exodus 13, 21. The glory of the very presence of God led the people. Okay? The Israelites were trained to sing, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 27, 1. The word of God is a light to our path. It's a lamp unto our feet. A light unto our path. That's found in Psalm 119, 105. The Bible says light. That light is Yahweh in action. Psalm 44, 3. Isaiah tells us that the servant of the Lord was appointed as light to the Gentiles that he might bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. So when Christ said, I'm the light of the world, do y'all think that came with some stunning force? Yes, it did. There is an immediate consequence. And here's what Jesus said. Catch this. Whoever follows me, track where I'm going, and an, an appropriate thing to do with light because they had this glorious pillar of cloud setting out the way in the wilderness will be that you will not walk in darkness but you will have the light of life. It's liberation from the sphere of death. It is life in the kingdom of God. It is to take you from death to life. And that's describing the light of God. What else did Jesus say? In Matthew 5.14, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, if you're familiar with the Beatitudes, you are the light of the world. So there's this understanding that Jesus, 8.12 of John, I am the light of the world. And if you're in Christ and you're a follower of Christ, you 
are the light of the world. With that understanding in mind, okay, that we will live as people of the light. Here's what the text will tell us. Don't become a partaker in godly behavior. Since you are light. Are you all awake? Just nod to me to make sure you're alive and awake. Okay? Make, look, don't become a partaker in ungodly behavior. This is focused on verse 7 and 11 in that structure that reminds us of it. So the prohibition is based on that warning. Chapter 5, verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Those who do not know Christ. Sons of disobedience. That's the warning. And based upon that warning, don't become a partaker, a sharer. Why? Because the wrath of God is coming against those who are disobedient. Believers should not, therefore, participate in that kind of behavior. Do y'all see? And the behavior is what? Again, sexual immorality. Greed. Filthy language. Don't partake in that. The term partner signifies one who shares in the possession of or is in relationship to. Now, is this speaking of a total radical separation with no contact with the outside world? Is it? Well, the idea is that believers cannot embrace any of these things as a pattern of lifestyle immoral lifestyle that's associated with that kind of teaching. Paul's point here is that if you fully participate in that kind of worldview and that kind of contact conduct of unbelievers in matters of sex and monies, money, folks, that is incompatible with being in membership with the people of God. They don't fit. You can't partner with that. The them in the text is the sons of disobedience. So we're called to be salt in our society. We are called to love and befriend those who are outside the faith. However, our mission does not involve participating in the sins of unbelievers. We should flee those sins. We should not share in the world's greed, the world's sexual immorality, and the world's corrupt speech. That's pretty plain, isn't it? We don't partner with that. Again, this is part of becoming like the one you belong to. This is nothing else other than sanctification, right? Becoming more like the Lord, putting off, putting on, okay? Second, walk as children of light. In verses 8 through 10, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light, light in the Lord. So, you've heard me talk about indicatives. Here's the indicatives. You were in dark, you were darkness, you are light. God did that. You did not perform that work on yourself. God did that by grace through faith. Okay? But there's also an imperative here. Since you are light, here's the imperative command. Walk. See it? That should be your manner of life. So we couldn't perform the indicative. God did that. But you are called by God to perform the imperative. You are to submit to the Lord. And you are to walk in the light. That's what this means. So again, but now you are light. Highlights the contrast with, previous, with the previous phrase. So this word, phos, phos, is where you get photizo, photograph. It, it means, so as metaphorically, you were dark. Now 
metaphorically, you are light. And there's not a light on top of your head, right? So this is talking about who you are in Christ. It's, it's, it's a consequence of a new identity. That you are now light. And I would encourage you to study the, the New Testament imagery of darkness and light. Let me give you some verses. You got your pen? All right. John 1, 4 through 9. John 3, 19 through 21. John 8, 12. John 9, 5. Acts 8, 12. Acts 9, 5. Acts 26, 18. And Romans 13, 12 through 13. Be glad to provide those for you. I would encourage you to write those down and read it. Again, it's important to note that Paul does not state that we were once in darkness as an environment and now we are light in light, but rather that we were darkness and now we are light. He's indicating that it wasn't just merely you were in a dark environment, but your state was that of a nature that was dark. I think that recalls Ephesians 2. 1 through 12. So the phrase in the Lord communicates fear. Sphere. What changed you from dark to light? Well, it's the grace of God in salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereby you responded in faith. Put your trust in Him. Therefore, there's that dynamic of being moved from dark to light. Not an environment, but a position. You were in a position of dark. You are now in a position of light. And therefore walk in the light. So the believer's union with Christ is the decisive difference in living for him. Snodgrass, great commentator, says, No text is as strong in the Bible on its explanation of conversion. Why is that the case, folks? There's no middle ground. You're either dark or light. That's conversion. You were dark, you are light. Now, it would be the pastor's best friend for all believers to understand that dynamic and to live it. But I'm telling you, folks, in our day, we're, we're, we're dealing with people who think that just having your name on the church roll means you're going to heaven. Or if you just go through baptismal waters, you're going to heaven. Folks, on the authority of Scripture, that is not true. The ones going to heaven are in union with Christ and have believed the gospel. And they have moved from dark to light. And thus, if you're light, you can't sin and enjoy it. You might for a second. Pleasure, sin is good. I know it's fun for a while. But in the end, if the Holy Spirit of God lives in you and you, lives in you, and you are light, then something's going to go off in your mind and heart that something's not right. You're, you're in darkness. You're dark. You're Light. So this all comes down with force about who you are in Christ and living the Christian life. You're characterized by light. So again, Paul makes that shift from the indicative, your light, and to this incredible encouragement for us to walk in who we are, to pursue total holiness before the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because we are new people. Again, there's that motivating factor, right? Just like Willie, with all that ice cream on there, you know, here's your motivation. You are light. You are light. Live that way. And now notice this. What does it look like? Again, parentheses. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. I would venture to say that everything Paul has summarized way back in Ephesians 4 
all the way down through where we are now could be contained in those three phrases. In other words, what does light look like? What does it look like when you're walking in the light? Well, the fruit of light looks like goodness, righteousness, and truth. It's describing the fruit of life. These are characteristics of God. Our God is good. Amen? He's right and he's true. And I think it's a summary of all the ethics given for us in the book of Ephesians. Why do I say that? Well, when we are in Christ and walk in the light, we do good works. You've been preordained to do those good works. Ephesians 2 verse 10. Just look back at it. See, that's part of it. We've been called to live righteously. Chapter 4 verse 24. That's moral uprightness or living rightly before God and men. And then we are to speak truthfully. The word is aletheia. Strong emphasis on truth. You shall know the truth and it will set you free. That's what John says. So notice verse 10. We are to walk as children of light. How? With those three things in mind, but also discerning. Well, this gets good, right? Is this not a a good motivation? Uh, The word actually means to put to test, to examine, or to prove by testing. Listen to it. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I mean, when's the last time we stopped? Pumped the brakes. Stopped dead in our tracks and said, Lord, am I living in such a way that I'm pleasing you? Now, this becomes that discerning aspect. That test, that examination. Does anybody know what verse that sounds like? Sounds like Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you therefore, brethren. You want your motivation? Here it is. I urge you therefore, brethren, in view of God's mercy, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable and pleasing to the Lord, which is your reasonable service. Verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might, here's the word, exact word, prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Did you know that you can prove the will of God? And by the way, we're not living on earth trying to get God's will done in heaven. That's already done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we need to understand and discern is what is the will of God. And when you get to verse 15, he's going to strike that chord. On what is the will of God and, and doing the will of God. And we'll, we'll get to that, okay? But understand, we should live our lives with this understanding of what pleases the Lord. Not what, what first pleases man, but what pleases the Lord. With all three of those things in mind as well. Good works, righteousness, moral uprightness before God, truthfulness. And then we, we test what is pleasing to the Lord. People may tell you that your belief system is archaic, passe to a forward-thinking society of progressives. You shouldn't believe those old things. You need to get out of the Stone Age, catch up with 2022. That's what people will tell you. How can you believe that Bible? It's an archaic piece of literature, even though it is the most fantastic piece of literature ever written. But you just, just do away with that. Well... What do you do in life to walk in the light? You keep coming back to this finest Christian motto. And what is it? What will please the Lord? Y'all seeing this? What will please the Lord? 2 Corinthians 5. Let me show you a verse. I was trying to limit turning for the sake of time. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 6. So we are always of good courage. 
We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether it is good or evil. Do you see Paul's admonition for us? To please the Lord. The light metaphor speaks vividly of Christian openness, transparency, living joyfully in the presence of the Lord. Why? Because we seek to please Him. Everything can be going awry in your life on the outside and circumstances. But I'm telling you folks, joy in Jesus Christ is independent of circumstances. I wasn't feeling the best this morning. I haven't felt the best emotionally, spirit, whole nine yards. But the Lord is still on the throne. He still rules the day. I still submit to his authority and no one else's, right? So why do I do that? Because down deep in my heart at an early age, I learned those verses. I'm not perfect. I fail. I fall short. I'm fickle, right? But here's what I do stick to. God, I've got to do what pleases you. I'm going to seek to please the Lord. So this is also the kind of sacrifice that Paul makes mention of in Romans 12. That sacrifice that we give our lives is connected to pleasing the Lord. That which is good and acceptable before Him. I can't stress this enough. Young people, that needs to be your finest Christian motto. Not to please that boy. Not to please that girl. But to please Jesus. That has to be our motto. Right? Consider the rich blessings that God Almighty has showered on you. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. That's why Paul gives that stuff to remind us who we are in Christ. Use that as motivation and identification for who you are so that in every situation in life you live in such a way to please the Lord. Right? Number three, expose evil for what it is. This again beckons back to the structure of the text. It's associated with a joint activity. Avoid participation in darkness. That's unproductive, useful, useless works that come from darkness. But you also need to refrain from participating in the unfruitful, unfruitful deeds of darkness. It's instead, expose them. It means bring light, set forth. It's exposed could be those that are non-Christians. And it could be those that are Christians. Uh, I picked up probably 12 different commentaries. And there was variation of where the writer of the commentary would go when it comes to exposing the fruits, unfruitful works of darkness. Some would say, well, that's talking about non-Christians. What do I believe? I think it's talking about Christians. That's the whole tenor of the text. It has to do with believers. And let me give you, not only is the overall passage consistent with injunctions about unbelievers, I mean about believers... Paul's going to use the same verb over in 1 Timothy 5, 2 Timothy 4, Titus 1, Matthew 18 of rebuking errant members of the community of faith. Number three, when you get to the subsequent content here, it continues to focus on instruction given to believers in growth and maturity. In other words, the rebuke is about spiritual growth, not punitive damages. We're not trying to damage someone 
We're trying to expose in order that they continue to go in their process of sanctification. Does that make sense? God has not ordained you as the designated sin sniffer in our church. If you have that kind of attitude, you'll be judgmental. You will be overly censorious toward individuals. That's not what God has asked you or designated you to be. However, these sins listed here all emphasize sexual connotations. Those particular sins that are shameful, deeds done in secret. Think about this. That very first wave of believers that were saved in Ephesus. You know, think about this in Acts 19. 18 and 19, Paul comes in and preaches. And I'm telling you, there's some good-for-nothing, rotten sinners that are gloriously birthed by Jesus Christ, and they all come flooding into the church. It's so serious that it takes a miracle of God to run off these sons of Sceva. Actually, remember, demons come out and whoop the fire out of these people, and they just run off naked. I mean, it's, ooh, it's strong. And it was only then that these Ephesian believers burned these books that they had been following and reading. Well, just think about the magnitude of the sexual orientation that they had. So, there's no question that conviction has to become a part of your life. In other words, these sexual sins were part of your life before Christ. And it would have been really easy for them to come over into the church and think that it's okay to continually live that way. And Paul says, no. You were dark. You are light. So Paul gives us a course of action to follow when we encounter believers that are in these sexual sins. The purpose of bringing the inappropriate conduct to light is not punitive, but restorative. This is the function of light when it penetrates darkness. It seems that Paul, in my opinion, is given kind of a, a double understanding of this. First, when anything is exposed to light, it becomes visible. I don't care how dark it is. It doesn't take but a little ray of light. and Bang. You, you see light penetrating darkness. That's always good. Darkness hides the ugly realities of evil. The light makes them visible. The evil is seen from what? is seen for what it is without any possibility of concealment. Secondly, anything that becomes visible, check this out, is light. Not only does light penetrate darkness, but it actually becomes light. So this can reference a righteous life that, re uh, that actually is retrained and then is reformed and then begins to expose evil as it is, why? Because you're the light, right? Light in this world, of, of course, what Jesus is meaning. But as the light shines, it suddenly makes light. Just as the Ephesians themselves are light, right? It illumines, but it also gives life. Okay, so exposure sounds negative. No one wants to be exposed. No one wants their sin to be touched on. Because it's real easy for us to say, well, you got a giant two-by-four protruding out of your right eye. And you're trying to get this little minuscule splinter out of mine. Right? We, we understand what the scripture says about these things. They can be judgmental. And the people who are bringing them to you, they actually can be coming in a judgmental way if they're not doing it biblically. They can be coming in a condemning spirit. 
But the light has a positive, check this out, evangelistic power. The light of one soul making another light. And that's what we're trying to do. Uh, Again, not a designated sin sniffer. But also having a militant attitude towards sin because you know the position you were in and where you were held. And yet you see brothers and sisters going back to a particular lifestyle which characterized them when they were in the dark. So the goal is to bring people, as they see the ugliness of evil, to a conviction of their sin and a penitent attitude toward Christ. This is a twofold effect of light in prevailing darkness. Think about our world that we live in. It makes visible and it makes light. Hallelujah. All right, number four. Trust that God's light will bring life. Verse 14 For anything that becomes visible is light. That seems like a summation, doesn't it? Of those doubly, uh, the, the two understandings of light. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Here we see what it means to be manifest or to be visible. Again, the construction really is this. Everything being revealed. Because it's in a participial form. Those who accept the reproof and exposure, right? You become light in the Lord. I like how Peter O'Brien notes this. Here's what he says, and I quote, The light not only exposes, it also transforms. Paul's inference is grounded here with an assertion. He's given an assertion about a Waco sleeper. Now, there's a lot of argument about where this comes from. Because there's not... Paul is giving this as a normal introductory thing for you to say, okay, he's about to quote the Old Testament, right? He's about to tell you where this comes from. But in reality, we don't have a quotation in the Bible in the Old Testament that is exactly like what Paul is saying. We do have two passages that add credence to what Paul is saying. And therefore, many people believe that this was an early church him that Paul was actually quoting that was formed and they were already singing you know the scripture says lift up psalms and hymns and spiritual songs I think that means you ought to sing the Bible right and so they were already and that's going to be coming up a little later in chapter 5 but most people believe it was a hymn but let me show you quickly those verses that bring together this understanding of light and darkness and how God gives light and life. One would be Isaiah 26, 19. Let me just read these for you to get a taste of it. 26, 19 says, Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. That's one part. And then Isaiah 60 Listen to the word of the Lord, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, Arise, shine. Well, that sounds a lot like a Waco sleeper. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. So they contain this light and this darkness Some maintain that this was kind of observed during baptism in the early church. 
that picture of being dark. And Jesus makes you alive. And water baptism shows that particular understanding. So, this person is described as a sleeper. Any of those in church today? Boy, I could really run off on this one. Because I've been watching you and many of you have been... Not only, I'm thankful the Bible says the Lord never slumbers or sleeps, but you do both, right? There's no question about that. So sleeper, it's used figuratively for slumbering in a moral and spiritual condition. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you, conviction, right? We, we become sleepers. We are we're slumbering in the issue of morality. This is an exhortation to disobedient or wayward believers. This is another reason why I think this is aimed at, at believers, clearly. Believers have died to sin, right? You have, Romans 6, but you also are not to let sin enslave you. Now, how does that work? If you're dead to sin, how is it that you can't let it enslave you? I know some people claim or say that, Human nature now is two natures when you trust Christ. You've got the old and the new, and it's kind of like having a black dog and a white dog, and which one's winning the war? Whichever one you say sick them to, right? Well, folks, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You have one nature. However, you have a propensity still towards sin that will enslave you. That part of you is not gone Yet, not until you see Jesus face to face, right? And that will be gone. But here, here, here we can become sleepers. Any sleepers in here? We, we, and, and think about this in relation to these sexual sins. Think about in relation to morality. The verb Paul uses here is will shine upon. It's rare. It's rare, and it's only found here in the New Testament. And the only other place it's found is in the book of Job. And it's found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Wow, it's very, very rare. It, it has to do with the shining of the sun and the moon. Job 25.5 and Job 31.26. It's highly possible that shine on you reflects that messianic promise in Isaiah 9.2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. All right, folks, you ready? Again, I refer you to the words of Jesus. I am the light of the world. Got that one? Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, Jesus not only bestows life to you as a disciple, but he goes with you on the journey. And if the light is not continuing on with you in the journey... We need to go back to the source and ask if we ever had the light to begin with. If you've had the light, you will become a follower. We forget that in evangelism, right? Just pray the prayer and you're all good. Now, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and if we're not following, we're not saved. If we're not following the Lord, so Jesus gives us his clarification Whoever follows me will never walk. So, if we're light, then we're empowered by the presence of the Lord. Think of this. On the flip side, if you sin, the Bible says in chapter 4, verse 30, you grieve the Spirit. But here's the positive side of that ledger. You've got the powerful Holy Spirit living in you that directs 
encourages, sustains, and helps you through this journey of sanctification. That's good preaching. It is. It's good preaching. It's good to remember that. The greatest teacher that God has ever given you is the Holy Spirit of God. And you can't be in the light and not have connection with who God gave you in the light. Who is the Holy Spirit of God. Powerful, powerful stuff in our pursuit of holiness. It's not a demand just upon you. It's a demand on the Christ that is in you. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet it's not I that lives, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself to me. Or for, the actual word is for me. Here's a conclusion. We live in a world of moral confusion. We cannot afford to live like secret service Christians. Young people at Ozark High School, you cannot afford to be a secret service Christian. I love to hunt. Here's my analogy as a redneck. You cannot try to go in camouflage and hide and blend in with the crowd. You cannot afford to do that. Paul never advocates escapism. Don't you wish there was a verse that says, I'm going to save you, take you on to glory, so you don't have to go through this process of sanctification. That's not what he does. He puts you on earth for a purpose. He repeatedly... Although he doesn't say escapism, he repeatedly commends us to live a countercultural lifestyle. In other words, folks, here's the deal. We can't accept this world view that's around us and just say, hook, line, and sinker. Well, we're just going to let parts of that. Let's get up. We can't live in such a way that we want to stand right beside the world so that we're not ostracized. That's not what the Bible teaches. Any old dead fish can float with a current. It takes one that's alive to go against the flow. And that's what God is calling us to do. Christians need to be with non-Christians, especially on our mission to take the gospel to the ends of the world. But we can't live like them. Church has to have different standards on sex, on attitudes toward money. We ought to have a different attitude about dirty joke telling. Paul says, don't be sharers with them. We are responsible for fellow believers to help them, not as a sin sniffer, but to help them in their process of sanctification to becoming more like the king that they belong to. That's the goal. The good news is that if we respond to the rebuke, God will give you grace and mercy. And here's his promise. Look at that. Christ will shine on you. Praise the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this text, Lord God. Help us to live in light of it. We all have our blind spots. We all have our justifications for our decisions, for our lifestyles. God, help us to lay that all bare before your word. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 4 that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. That means there's no safe place on the sword. It cuts both ways. God, use that. To function us. Brother David says it awful, often. Chisel us a little more into the image of Christ. God help us to be conformed to your image. Lord help us to live in such a way that we positionally we're in you. But God help us to live practically in such a way that we show our position. That we belong to you. God our ultimate motivation it's to, to the glory of the Father, to the praise of your glorious grace in saving us as your children. Let that be our motivation. 
Father, if there's someone under the sound of my voice that's lost, may they repent and believe the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. soul I sin oppress there's mercy with the Lord and he will surely give you rest by trusting in his word only trust him only trust him only trust him now he will save you God bless you. We will meet tonight, and I kind of want to do a follow-up on uh, Resurrection Sunday. Of course, we're a few weeks removed, but I want to preach out of Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, we know what the Lord God has done once. He put our sin away. He's going to do something twice. All right? Come back tonight, and we'll talk about that. Uh, hope you'll be here in attendance. Miss Ann?
This is Miss Ann Carrico. Now, I did a funeral a few weeks ago, and I think I told you that they were members of Adrian Rogers Church for 47 years. And you know how that made me feel, about this high. Well, Miss Ann was, was a member of John MacArthur's church for seven years. So I even feel lower. I can go all the way into the... But no, Miss Ann's been coming quite a while. She just wants to stand before you. She's taken our new members class. She's a member of our church. I want you to know who Miss Ann is. All right. To God be the glory. Amen. That's it. All right. I'm going to make you go back there with Don, though, for people to greet you. All right. Just so welcome. She is coming to us by statement of faith. Okay. She knows the Lord. She's following believers' baptism. Praise the Lord. Well, God bless you. Glad you were here. And hope you have a wonderful day in the Lord. We, we've got warmth today and sunshine. All right. So praise the Lord for giving us that day. You are dismissed. We'll see you tonight. Let's sing. That's why we praise Him. That's why we praise Him. That's why we sing. That's why we offer Him everything. That's why we bow down and worship this King.